You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Mike, and I want to also add my greeting and welcome and good morning. Uh, I'm Eric Barton. And I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel, and we're delighted that you're here. We don't think it's an accident. We believe that God in His sovereignty, in His grace, has drawn every person here uh, to hear something, to be touched, taught, transformed by His text. And so we want to be very intentional about spending some concerted time and effort in His Word. We believe that when we study God's Word together as His people, in His Spirit, then He speaks to us, His people, in the present tense. And so that's our expectation. And there are times when we, we want to wrestle with the Lord and not, uh, be, not turn Him loose until He speaks to us. And so this morning, I will just go ahead and spoil a surprise, is one of those texts that we sort of have to wrestle through. It's a challenge. But before we get there, I want to draw special attention to a couple things. Number one, this morning is November 11th, which means that it's 100 years since the end of World War I. So I want to also say thank you to all those who have served our country in one capacity or another. And to say, man, 100 years since World War I, there are a lot of ways in which it feels like that, that was 600 years ago, but it's only been 100 years ago. And so it's amazing that uh, we live in a world that is still sort of experiencing some of the reverberating echoes from that. But also this Sunday, in the church, all over the world, the church has come together and is drawing special attention to the plight and the need of orphans in our world. Now, in Smith County alone, particularly in Smith County, we currently have 1,900 children in foster care. I don't know how big you think Smith County is, but that's an astonishing statistic. We have 1,900 children in Smith County alone in foster care. And in Smith County, we presently have 500 foster or foster to adopt homes in Smith County. So I'm pretty terrible at math, as most of you know, but pretty evidently and pretty clearly that creates a pretty significant gap and a delta where we have only 500 homes in Smith County, 1,900 kids that are in need of being fostered or adopted, and only so many homes. And so that creates... Um, sort of a, a pressing need just in our county alone. And then, of course, all over the world, there are orphans in need of nurture, of homes, and in love. And we know without question that the plight of the orphan is very near and dear to the heart of God. There will be many, many, many thousands and thousands of children that will have woken up this morning not experiencing the blessing that God intends for them to wake up in a home with a father that loves them. And so we want to be sensitive to and aware of the need, even in our county alone. Many of you do an incredible, amazing work there. We have some of our own families that will finalize their adoptions uh, this coming Friday. There's a big countywide service that's actually going to be at Green Acres. And a lot of the families that have been going through foster care and foster to adopt will be recognized this coming Friday. But we recognize that not every person, not every household, of course, can be a direct participant in foster care or respite care or in adoption. We understand that. But at some level, we all want to be aware of the need in our county and at least uh, pray for the plight of the orphan in our community, in our county. But also, if you know of anybody who is a foster home or a foster to adopt home or who is in the process of adoption, man, I sincerely invite you and encourage you and exhort you to get involved with them somehow relationally, deeply, meaningfully, and personally. Perhaps financially, perhaps just from a material goods provision standpoint, perhaps certainly prayerfully, but to let them know that as an agent and representative of the kingdom and the church, that you would come alongside them and encourage them. So here's what I'd love to do this morning. I want us to pray uh, as the church for the plight of the orphan in our community and the world and ask that God would continue to lead us forward. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem those of us who are believers to yourself and even to one another. And we thank you, Father, for the reality, the truth of adoption. That if we are believers, that is our story. That we were abandoned, we were left, 
We were hopeless and helpless because of the effects of sin and death in our world, and yet you came to us and you adopted us, you took us in, and you not only gave us life, you gave us dignity, you gave us purpose, you made us all, whether male or female, firstborn sons. So Father, we thank you for that model of adoption that is the gospel. We do pray, Father, specifically for uh, our community, uh, that you continue to mobilize the church to be uh, ambassadors of the gospel via adoption and foster care and respite care, and that we would have uh, eyes to see and ears to hear of the need. And Father, for those families that are going through um, any of the sides of these equations regarding adoption and foster care, God, we pray for peace, pray for wisdom, and we pray for provision, that you would be recognized and seen as the God of all grace and the God of all comfort. And for those that will go through adoption, this coming Friday, God, we pray that you uh, would be recognized as uh, a good father who works all things together according to your purpose. And so may you receive all the glory from it, Father. And now, God, we do ask, as Mike has already requested, that you would continue to speak to us, your people, by your spirit through your word. We pray these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, I want to talk about choices. I want to be very direct, very practical, very pertinent. I want to talk about choices. Perhaps if you've ever had this experience, maybe you are a parent, maybe you have kids, and at some point one of your kids, maybe multiple of your kids, has walked out wearing something and you just went, <laughs> what? what in the world? What were you thinking? Why would you put that on and think that you could leave this house? What is your thought process? How did you make that decision? Or maybe that's even happened to you before. You found yourself in some public space and you went, oh, oh dear heavens, oh God, please let there be a rapture now! Because you realized that what you were wearing was totally not gonna get the job done. Maybe that's happened to you and you wonder, how did I make those decisions? Why am I wearing this here? What we all of us know intuitively and in instinctively is that our choices are a very large part of our daily lives. So how do we really and truly make choices? So I want to get fairly philosophical this morning as we begin to talk through our passage because I think this is about as pertinent and practical as we can possibly be when we bring our lives to the Bible. We open God's Word, we bring our lives to it, and we say, would you nuance, would you polish, would you reconstruct, re-architect my life according to the clear, compelling teaching of your word? Now, there is this uh, increasingly popular idea in our culture over the last several decades to really try and celebrate the dignity of human beings by saying that all of us truly have truly free will. And the idea is that we are completely free to make every choice completely on our own. But I want to press up against that notion for a little while because our text today is going to speak directly to that. Jesus is going to speak some words in John chapter 6. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want to strongly encourage you to open your Bible, either hard copy or digitally, to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put it on screen, but I'll also encourage you to find someone who's not paying attention and take their Bible because I want you to have this on your lap. Jesus is going to give us some words that have ultimately to do with our choosing and our choices. A little later, the Apostle Paul is going to come along and deeply develop some things that Jesus says, particularly in Romans and Ephesians. He's going to take some of the words of Jesus and help us to understand exactly what we're like and how we decide things. Paul will say that our nature, our essence, what we are as a species is essentially corrupted by sin. Because of what happened in Genesis 3, our essence is corrupt. It has fallen. The very best thing that we can possibly produce on our own is sin. Because Paul will say anything that proceeds apart from faith is sin. That means even the good, moral, decent, nice, pretty, fair things that we do apart from faith is actually sin before a holy God. Or to put it another way, our chooser is busted. It's tilted heavily to one side. In fact, our chooser is so busted that it cannot make godly choices on its own. And so I want to say what we've said in the past, that sin is a really big deal, such a big deal that it even affects our choosing, our choices, but it is no match for God's grace. 
God has not left us helplessly unable to experience the life for which we have been created. God has intervened. And in his sovereignty, in his grace, he has created all sorts of influencing factors that go into the choices that we make. In his choosing, God determines things like my nature. What kind of person am I going to be? I had very little to choose with what kind of person I would be. I had absolutely no say, no choice in the matter of when I would be born, where I would be born, or to whom I would be born. Had it been my option, I can promise you, I would not have selected the panhandle of Texas in the early 70s. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And particularly in the early 70s, a significantly challenging time in human history in the Texas panhandle. I would not have chosen that nor probably would I have chosen the people to whom I was born. And yet, it is without question a part of who I am. I had no say in it. The culture in which I grew up, I didn't get to choose the culture and the friends that surrounded me in the Texas Panhandle in the early 1970s. I really didn't get much say in the matter. I grew up listening to Public Enemy and the Beastie Boys. Judge me if you like. That's just what was happening back then, okay? That's a part of who I am. I didn't choose that. It chose me, all right? It was either Lawrence Welk or the Beastie Boys. What are you going to do? I'm a victim, okay? (laughs) I didn't have really any say in hardly any of that. And all of that stuff then began to feed into my value system, the things that I care and that I love. All is sort of fed into me. That became a part of who I am. And what's fascinating is every philosopher, every theologian from the time of Aristotle right up through guys like Ronald Nash and R.C. Sproul, we all agree with this. All of us will always make decisions based upon what we desire most. All of us will always choose based on what we desire most. Now, always and immediately, the moms in the crowd go, mm-mm, I make all kinds of decisions that I don't want to do because I got kids. I'm like, I know. Take a breath. No one's attacking your momhood. I'm just saying... But you will make all kinds of decisions because what you actually value even more is the health and happiness of your children. And you will self-sacrifice because that's a high priority. All of us always choose according to what we desire most. Which is why 18th century preacher Thomas Chalmers was right when he said what every single one of us needs most is the expulsive force of a greater affection. All of us love something more than we should, and none of us love our Lord as much as we should. What we need is the capacity to to have those other desires of our hearts and minds and souls and lives expelled so that we love the right thing the most. Whatever we desire most is the center of our everyday choosing. And then all of that stuff determines my personality, what I'm like as a person. What I am like as a person then goes into very much uh, determining what kind of person I'm going to marry. And the person to whom I am married is a great grand influencer on my choosing. And if you're married and you think your spouse is not an influencer on your choosing, then... <laughs> Hold on there. <laughs> no, of course... Everybody who's married knows that, of course, your spouse is a great impact and an influence on your choosing, on your decision-making processes. And then there's your job. If you think your job is not an influence and an impact in your decision-making processes, of course it is. And all that often comes because of your personality. And so all of those things are the ingredients that go into how we make our choices. And so I want to say, as dogmatically as I can, contra every badly written TV series or book or movie screenplay or pop song, let me say it this way. Our choices do not make us who we are. Who we are makes our choices. Now, let me just get as philosophical as I can because I'm talking about you. It's your favorite topic, and this morning we get to talk about it. It's you! We're going to talk about you! This is about the most practical and pertinent thing I can say. Our choices do not make us who we are. Who we are makes our choices. And I know that might sound or feel distinctly un-American. I will tell you, it is precisely the most freeing thing in the cosmos. Our choices don't make us who we are. Who we are makes our choices. And if we pause and humbly consider our actual practical reality, 
We know this to be true. There's a lot that goes into our choosing. None of our choices are actually completely and totally free and in a vacuum. To this day, if I'm on a road trip and I have to choose between something and intergalactic by the Beastie Boys, you know what I'm going with. It's not a neutral decision in a vacuum. Of course I'm going with that. So then, what about the most important choices we have to make in the cosmos. What about that singular thing that every human being in history has ever wanted? How can a person receive everlasting life and not have to worry about their eternity? How does a person get into right standing before a holy God despite the obvious sin that all of us carry? And very essentially, very crucially, what choices do we make? How and why do we make them so that we can have the life of God here and now? Every person ever in all of human history, regardless of their background, regardless of their bent, God has wired us thus, desires life with God. Every person ever in every civilization, every people group, anthropologically, every person ever has has desired life with God with God, the life of God ever. Now they may have different uh, trajectories and traditions of how to accomplish that, how to arrive at that, but every person, the Bible says, has the eternal spark of God planted in their hearts. Every person. So how does a person arrive at that? The point of our enormous passage this morning is simply this. The life of God is in Christ. The life of God is in Christ. So again, if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in John's gospel. It's absolutely enormous, 71 verses. And the gospel of John is written to the unbeliever. Now that's really important as we try to understand our passage for today. The gospel of John is written to the unbeliever. Now his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, are written to the believer, to the church. But the gospel of John is written so that you might believe. It gives us the thesis of his entire gospel in chapter 20. It is written so that you might believe. John includes some things in his gospel that he does not include in his epistles and vice versa. So the gospel of John, and we're going to go to John chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 22. Now, let me just start off with a little bit more introduction as if there hasn't been enough already, and then we'll really pick up speed. Let me just say that this is a super challenging text, one of the most difficult, challenging passages in the whole of the New Testament. First of all, it's a very large portion of Scripture, but it really does have to be taken together if we're going to understand the entire message. Secondly, it has some pretty graphic and challenging language that has caused confusion and scoffing and sarcasm and stumbling for centuries. Some really graphic language where Jesus is going to talk about his flesh and his blood. It's going to sound, on the surface, cannibalistic. So let me just spoil the surprise and go ahead and say that the graphic language that Jesus uses is metaphorical and it is spiritual because Jesus himself says so. Many people, many entire denominations and sects have gotten completely wrapped around the axle, not understanding the nuance of what Jesus is saying, but Jesus himself says that the language is metaphorical and spiritual. Now, a little bit irritatingly, Jesus is not really all that interested in setting the, settling the crowd down or clarifying their, their misunderstandings. He pushes the metaphor again and again, deeper and deeper, and he will also say that he is not being directly literal, even though that's how the crowd that hears this is going to take it, and that's why they get upset, and that's why they grumble. This passage has also been used by many people for millennia to try and defend the sacramental nature of communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, meaning that the Lord's Supper is literally flesh and literally blood present. But that simply cannot be what this passage that we're about to read is talking about. Because by the time John writes this, chapter 6, communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, has not even been implemented or installed by Jesus yet. Hasn't happened yet. In fact, as one commentator puts it, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is about John 6. Now that's super important. The Lord's Supper is not about what Jesus says in John 6. Oh, I'm sorry, the Lord's Supper is about what Jesus says in John 6. John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. So now, let's look at this passage and see what all we can learn and discern. John chapter 6, I'll start reading in verse 22. John chapter 6, verse 22. 
John writes, on the next day. Well, what next day? Very quickly, the day before this, Jesus has just fed 5,000 men and their families. So that's upwards of 15 to 20,000 people, miraculously, with five loaves of barley and two spreadable fish. He's just uh, fed all these thousands of people. And then the disciples get in a boat. They go across the lake. Jesus goes off by himself and prays. And then he walks on the water. That's always a tip-off that the person should be paid attention to. And then... Uh, Jesus gets in the boat and immediately they arrive in Capernaum on the north central shore of the lake. So on the next day, the crowd that remained on the hillside on the other side of the sea, that's the east side, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias, Tiberias is on the far western shore of the Sea of Galilee. They came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So we don't know if people sailed from Tiberias across the lake or if the storm simply blew a bunch of boats over there. We're not told. Doesn't really matter. Verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They are seeking Jesus because They've just experienced something incredible. No food anywhere in the area. Some small boy or a male slave shows up with barley loaves and a couple fish and thousands upon thousands of people are fed and there are baskets of food left over. Now remember, bread is a big deal in antiquity in the ancient Near East. If I was to ask all of you, what is the staple food of East Texas in 2018, you would say, uh, food. You'd say food, because we eat everything. Some of you love to eat Thai food. God bless you. Some of you love to eat Mexican food. God bless you. Some of you like to eat uh, continental American food, whatever. But you can pretty much eat whatever food you want, whenever you want, all the time. It's always available. And if someone's not cooking it for you, you can go to the grocery store and get it yourself. The food's just available all the time. But in their day, The staple diet of those people was bread, and it was not easy to come by. If we were to ask people today in Southeast Asia or China or India, what is your staple diet? They would say rice, perhaps fish, but largely rice. In the ancient Near East, the staple diet was bread. In our day and age, if we run out of bread, my wife sends me a single bread emoji text message, and that tells me I'm supposed to get bread. And I always forget, and even if I did remember, I don't know how many grains to get. I don't know. It's very frustrating. But in their day, if they run out of bread, there are no emojis and there are no grocery stores. If you run out of bread, you simply have no bread and you don't eat. So it's a big deal. It's a matter of life and death. Jesus has shown up on the scene, and he has fed people like that miraculously, dare we say, magically. Now we know culturally, anthropologically, that in that day and age, a person on average spent 80% of his income simply providing food for his family. 80% of what he made went to feeding his family. And so now if some guy shows up and can miraculously, uh, magically provide all of this bread and fish, You just got an 80% increase in your income. So I want you to keep all that in mind when these people go off looking for Jesus. This is the greatest deal that they've ever encountered and experienced, particularly under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Could this be the one that can feed us, make us happy, make us healthy, make us wealthy, and throw off our governmental oppressors? Ever felt that way about Jesus? They sure did. So let's pick up again. In verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea that's in the north central in Capernaum, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is more like, whoa, teach, how did you get here? Now they're going to call him Rabbi, which means teacher, and they're not going to understand pretty much anything that he says. The day before, they tried to make him king, and they'll try to do that again almost, but then they're going to grumble against him. You don't try to make someone a king and then grumble against them. These people clearly have an ulterior motive, a different set of expectations, right? Verse 25, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus does not answer the question on their lips. He answers the question on their hearts and their minds because that's what Jesus does. Now, the miracle of him walking on the water, appearing to his disciples on the lake, 
That was a private demonstration, a private, a private display of his sovereignty. He does not tell the crowds. I mean, he could have said, oh man, y'all totally missed it. It was killer. There they were out there just rowing and sweating like they stole something, going nowhere, and I just walked up to them. It was awesome. He doesn't tell them anything because it wasn't for them. It was for those who were already believers to see the power and the sovereignty of Jesus. Had he told them, oh yeah, I walked here, not around the shore, but over the white caps, they undoubtedly would have said, okay, that's a tip off. We want you to be our king. But he doesn't tell them. How did you get here? Doesn't even address it. Instead, he goes right in and tells them what he knows about their hearts. Jesus answered them, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Oh, you saw the sign, but you missed the significance. You saw the miracle, but you don't understand what it means. You think I'm just here to fill your temporal bellies. It's not what I'm about here. He tells them then in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now there's a lot going on here. He tells them not to work for food that perishes. Does this mean that Jesus doesn't want people to tend to their own physical needs? Of course not. It means that Jesus understands that these people are defaulting to their immediate physical and temporary needs and that they don't really care about the eternal need. But how could anybody not care about the eternal? I mean, it's eternal. And there is a big interpretive clue. It's a really significant point because they assume that their eternity is already safe and that their only legitimate concern is the here and now. They assume that because they're Jews, their eternity is already set. All they need is to have a meal now. And Jesus is telling them, no, that's not how your eternity gets set. That's not how you experience the life of God because the life of God, he's going to tell them, is in Christ. You think you have it, but you don't. It tells them that the Son of Man, He Himself, will give it to them freely. That's an audacious claim. He says that God the Father has set His seal. Jesus is saying that He Himself is God's provision. That's interesting. It's interesting that Jesus has no problem speaking on behalf of God the Father. Wow. He tells them that God has set His seal, that God has approved of Him. As one guy put it this way, if Jesus isn't God, somebody sure needs to tell Jesus. Because Jesus is pretty convinced that he's God. I've heard it said repeatedly, Jesus never makes any claim of deity or divinity in the New Testament. <laughs> Except for all the times that he does. Like right there, when you say God the Father has put his seal on me and I am his provision and I have life and I give life freely, that's a declaration of divinity. But the only thing they hear Jesus say because they're human, is the word work. So they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? If there's a formula, if there's an, a, a method, if there's a recipe to get this blessing, then they're going to be all in. Jesus said that the one responsibility they have is to believe. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent to trust, to put one's faith entirely on the work of the Son, the one that God has sent. Well, they say, we sure would, verse 30, but what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now remember, just yesterday afternoon, he fed thousands upon thousands. Oh, but that was yesterday. What have you done for me lately? In other words, listen, if you'll just hand us the lamp, we'll rub it. Then you pop out, you give us all this blessing, all this, and then get back in the bottle. All the power, little bitty space. And Jesus is not interested. In fact, that kind of God is not worth worshiping because that kind of God does not exist. You know, we saw the sign, but that was yesterday. If you want us to believe in you, fine. But what sign do you do? You know what? I'll tell you what. We'll help you out, Jesus. This is priceless. This is high humor here, except that it's not funny. What sign do you do, verse 30, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You know, Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Let's help you out, Jesus. We're going to quote scripture at you so that you are now obligated to bless us. Have you ever done that? Surely not. Maybe it's just me. I'm going to quote scripture at God and try to obligate him to bless me. Here's what you need to do, Jesus. We're going to give you a hint. We're going to give you a little nudge. We're going to help you out. You need to feed us again. I mean, come on. Moses gave our fathers manna. What are you going to do? Well, Jesus corrects them on two points. Jesus said to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses. No, it wasn't Moses that did it, who gave you bread from heaven. But my father gives you true bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses that did it. It was my father. And it wasn't about the bread. It was about his provision. It was about the person. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he, not it. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, uh, we want that. Give it to us always. Now this, by the way, again, is interpretively absolutely huge. I can't make a big enough deal. This is the interpretive key that tells us that this is spiritual metaphor. The bread of heaven is he who comes. It's not saying literally my flesh, literally my blood. So right away, Jesus is giving us another interpretive key that this is spiritual metaphor. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Yeah, we want that bread so that we don't have to work anymore, so that all of us get an immediate, instant 80% raise. It's just like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to give me water that makes me never be thirsty? Give me that water. Jesus says, you're not understanding. I'm talking about spiritual. I'm talking about eternal. Because see, the default human condition is to fixate merely and only on life and death. Even in the heart of every human is eternity. Jesus is going to say, essentially, there are worse things than death. There are better things than human flourishing. Make sure you're focusing on the right thing. And they weren't. They just wanted to be happy enough. But Jesus came to offer the life of God, which is in Christ. Verse 35, Jesus is going to give one of the first I am statements in the Gospel of John. There will be a total of seven I am statements. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. It's not a rule book. It's not a moral code of conduct. It's me, a person. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Ah, the great Calvinianism verse. It's Calvinistic and it's Arminian. Both. Some of you came from a tradition that was all about Calvinism. And then some of you came from a tradition that if someone said the Calvin word, you would burn their lawn. It's all free will. Man comes whosoever will. And there are those that, no, it's God chooses. No, man chooses. John 6.37 is the great big tent. It's Calvinian. It's both and. Listen to it again. All that the Father gives me will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Ah, finally, we can all get along until we can't. Keep reading. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. That's a pretty bold statement. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I am here as the executive branch of the will of God. I have come down from heaven. Now that's a bold statement. If you meet someone and they say, I have come down from heaven, you're like, Oh no, I think you're from Bullard. <laughs> like I've been to Brownsboro. I don't think there was heaven. Oh, that's a nice stadium and all. That's not, that's not heaven. I don't think so. And that's what they're saying to Jesus. Like, whoa, 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 you come down from heaven? We've been to Nazareth. It's got a spring, but heaven? Who does this guy think he is? Well, he's going to tell him. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I come from God. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Four separate times, Jesus is going to talk about raising up on the last day. Four times! What Jesus is most interested in is the eternal implications. Four times he's going to say this, I will raise them up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father. Verse 40, that, whoever, uh, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, um, and I will raise Him up on the last day. 
second time he says this. So the Jews grumbled about him. One of our favorite New Testament words. They agongismost about him. Agongismost, agongismost, agongismost. Remember, they're in a synagogue in Capernaum. This is where all the lay people get to have uh, dialogue, discourse, and discussion. And so Jesus just stands up and starts talking like this. I'm from heaven. I am the bread of life. I am the provision of God. And they're going, rawr, rawr, rawr. I don't know, that guy seems like he's from Bullard. I don't know about this. This is all very strange. Well, Jesus continues. He says in verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They didn't want a person. They wanted a provision. God's interested in more. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? I'm pretty sure that guy made me a coffee table. Now he's claiming to be the bread of God? That's weird. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. I can hear you. I'm right here. I can hear you. Verse 44, smoking gun, central passage. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, Jesus interested in the eternal things. No one can come unless the Father, helkuo, it's the Greek term. It has the idea of dragging or hauling, but not as a kidnapper. It's more like a strong father picking up a wounded child. But no one can come unless the Father does that. And when the Father does that, I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And that was a nuclear bomb. He's standing in the synagogue, and he just quotes Isaiah 45, 13, in which the prophet Isaiah says, one day, all will be taught by God, and they will come to God. And Jesus goes, it's me. I'm Isaiah 54, 13. You're being taught by God. Now come. It's not what you expected. You expected the sky to tear open and God the Father himself to just jump down. Nope, I came as a baby. It's me. I am Isaiah 54, 13. And they don't know what to think because they knew the passage. Now, verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, listen, you might have a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red text. That's fine. Let me just remind you that everything between the table of contents and the maps is red letter. It's all inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Nonetheless, more particularly, more specifically, I think John 4, uh, 6, 46 is not the spoken words of Jesus. I think this is John inserting his own parenthetical commentary. Now, if you want to insist that that is the spoken words of Jesus and that it's red letters, fine. We can still have welches and wafers together. We don't have to, like, break church fellowship. We can still agree on that. That's okay. But I think John 6.46 is actually the commentary of John. Back to verse 47, it's Jesus talking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Okay, that's clearer. A little less ambiguous. Jesus speaks very directly. Verse 49, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. It was temporary, but it wasn't ever about the bread. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. It's me, Jesus says, so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, this is where we get some really difficult language. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Awkward. Unless you're understanding what he's talking about, when he's talking about consumption, you'll misunderstand and go to cannibalism, which is what they do. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Clearly, Jesus is not advocating they physically eat his body. He is the one who inspired the writing of the book of Leviticus, which says, do not eat the blood. And for you Cajuns, that one's never been rescinded. That's never been rescinded. Don't eat the blood. That's disgusting. Okay? Jesus knows this. So verse 52, they said, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But remember, Jesus has already pushed forward and saying this is deep spiritual metaphor for the eternal. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's the fourth occurrence. Verse 55, here's the key, for my flesh is true 
food and my blood is true drink. Spiritually, of course, what he has to mean there, otherwise the entire rest of the passage makes absolutely no sense. He's talking about that which is true, that which has worth, that which has matter, that which goes on into eternity. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What's he talking about? He who consumes the life of Christ, who says, I have no other hope but Christ. I take all of him into me, nothing else. Jesus has already said that anything physical that you eat, even if it was his own flesh and blood, would simply go into you, nourish you, and pass out. It has no value. So clearly that is not what he is talking about. He's talking about the spiritual belief mechanics. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Because the life of God is in Christ. You take him into you as your only hope, your only want, your only desire, your only satisfaction. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus taught these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Capernaum is home base of operations from, uh, for ministry. Apparently at some point he leaves Nazareth and Capernaum becomes sort of his main uh, headquarters, if you will. It's a very long, difficult passage, but let me just try to submit four very quick summary implications of this passage. Number one goes like this. The will of God is that people have life in him. The will of God is that people have life in Him. Um, the pages of Scripture are totally soaked with this message. Since the instant that man sinned and rebelled way back in Genesis 3, all of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, has been working nonstop to bring humanity back to a right relationship with God through redemption. And the pages of Scripture tell us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the ungodly and that He is not slow as some think, Peter says, but is patient wanting all people to come to faith in who he is and what he's done. So much so that he even sent his own son to die in the place of the guilty and rebellious because he knows that the life of God is in Christ. Second point, the next three will have specifically to do with bread. Since Jesus says he's the bread, he's the bread, he's the bread, let's talk about bread. Bread, no one can be forced to eat it. I mean, in one sense... Have you ever tried to shove bread down someone's throat? I mean, because if you have, you should stop that. That's very bad. It's dangerous. You can hurt someone. You can choke them straight out. Don't try to shove bread down anybody's throat. It's, it, and I also mean you can't shove bread down people's throat. Nobody can authentically be out-argued into the kingdom of God against their own will or desire. Do, do you hear that? Do you know that? It's never really been about persuading people with so much evidence that they can say, Eureka! Now I get it. Now I understand perfectly. And now I'm going to make a decision for Christ completely out of the clear blue ether. I wish everybody in hell was as smart as me. There are many Christians who walk around with that attitude. Golly gosh, if the people in hell were as smart as I am, then there would be nobody in hell. But clearly, that's not the case. If you are a believer, it's because the Spirit of God has supernaturally and by grace raised the blinds. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this age, Satan, our enemy, has supernaturally lowered the blinds so that the unbeliever cannot see. It is an impossibility. He cannot see that Jesus is the Christ, that the life of God is in Christ. He's blinded from it unless the Spirit of God raises those blinds. Paul is unambiguous and clear. So if you're trying to jam bread down people's throat, stop that. You're just going to choke them out. Third point, bread, we can be made to hunger for nothing else. Or let me put it this way, you can lead a man to bread, but you can't make him eat. But you can certainly make him hungry or at least wait until he's starving. You see, sometimes in the sovereignty of God, the circumstances and experiences of life can be so intense, so difficult, that absolutely nothing else in the universe will satisfy the human need. Now make no mistake, God does not enjoy the suffering of people, of any people, but he does tolerate it in a fallen world because it is in those seasons that many people come face to face with their longing and the reality that only one thing can truly resolve and satisfy. And so to quote that great, accurate theologian, you know him as Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction. 
Now, I don't know that Mick intended that, but it's a double negative, but he's right. I can't get no satisfaction. I have to have a life that includes satisfaction at some level or I will never have peace and rest. And we were made for that. God has planted eternity in our hearts. That's the life of God and it is only in Christ. Third point about bread. It can be made utterly irresistible. Now, I don't know if you've ever done uh, a South Beach diet, an Atkins diet, a low-carb, no-carb diet, a keto diet. Clearly, it's been a very long time since I have, okay? But maybe you've done a low-carb, no-carb diet, and for a very long season of time, you completely deprived yourself of anything that was warm and soft and doughy and carbohydrate and just... Oh. And then you came upon a neighbor who was baking fresh bread and you literally chewed through the mortar of their house to get into it, right? It was utterly irresistible. Sometimes bread can be irresistible. Anyway, one of the many reasons that we as a church do church the way that we do is so in one sense to give the fragrance of our Lord Jesus as the bread of life to all that come and worship. A lot of these people have eaten nothing but for mica chips. For 20 years, 40 years, we want to waft the fragrance of our Lord Jesus as the bread of life. We want to join with all creation and the pages of Scripture in holding up Jesus as more beautiful and more believable, that He will be the central aspect of their desire. Now, by now, because I'm sure a lot of us from this part of the country come from all different trajectories and traditions, you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, 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 but hold on a second. But what about all those people who will get to the end of their lives, they'll die, and they'll be super upset because all they ever wanted was Jesus and they never got him. Like God just never would take them because of their face. Let me just tell you, from John chapter 6, that has never, ever, ever in human history happened, and it will never happen. All that the Father draws will come, and Jesus will for four times tell us, I will raise him up at the last day. If anyone has the slightest draw whatsoever to the life of God, it is because, it is because God himself is drawing them, and Jesus says he will keep every single one. And we, as his church, get to use every resource he's given us to be a part of that draw. So that more and more people at the end of their lives will say, here I am. And God will say, why should you and I experience the life of God together for all eternity? And that person won't say, well, because I, you know, I didn't speed in school zones and I occasionally paid my taxes. No, no, no. That person is simply going to say, Jesus, it's all I ever had. It's all I ever wanted. It's all I'll ever need. And God will say, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. The people would increasingly desire Christ because the life of God is in Christ. Now, one of the great, great glories of the gospel, bringing this back to what we began talking about, is that God in Christ actually fixes our chooser. When we come to him because of the gospel, he actually fixes our chooser. In fact, he gives us a new one and his indwelling spirit so that we want increasingly what he wants. He doesn't leave us broken and tilting to one side, always listing to sin. No, 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 no. He doesn't even leave us neutral. He actually begins to incline our will so that our choosers want to choose good and to do what he wants. And then we begin to understand that that is true freedom. This is the whole point of Philippians 2, 12, and 13. He gives us his spirit and a new will to act according to his purpose. When we see a passage like this, the idea and the intent is that we will see who this Jesus is and what he has done, what he has said, and then our desire and our affection will continuously increase along with our brothers and sisters in Christ at church in corporate worship such that every bit of our everyday choosing between the Sundays is actually transformed. So what we do when we gather together has profound practical implications and it really is God's plan for our life. That as a result of what we do in this place, we would all desire and treasure, revere the Christ more and more and more because our choosing is always going to be based on what we desire most. And the life of God is in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're still waiting to see if another path up the mountain opens up. I just want you to hear the words of Jesus himself, that he is the provision of life, he is the bread of life, he is the person of God incarnate. 
And we believe that the Bible is God's word to people. And I want you to hear that Jesus is, frankly, quite exclusivist. He leaves no room for any other alternative. If you don't like that, I strongly encourage you to take it up with Jesus. I double-dog dare you to pray and ask, is this stuff true? Did you really come to be the bread of life? Can I please be hungry? Because if you're even having that inclination, he's already drawing you. And for the rest of you, you've been a Christian since just after the ark hit solid ground. God love you. Please don't think that coming to church is merely about turning the wheel and pulling the crank and checking the box. It's not. It's about falling ever increasingly more deeply in love with Jesus so that on a daily basis, by Monday, by Thursday, by next Saturday night, your choosing is more Christ-like because He is your deepest and most profound desire. The life of God is in Christ and there is no other. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this difficult passage. I pray, God, that all of those gathered will have heard a better sermon than the one preached, that you will use your word by your spirit to increasingly help us to fall more in love with your son, Jesus. Father, I know that there are all sorts of distractions, all sorts of uh, competitive ideas and notions and values in this room, so would you draw us by your spirit to think your thoughts after you. And if there are one or two or three in this room who don't know you, who are still clinging to their own um, attempts at achieving somehow, acquiring somehow, arriving somehow at the life with God, apart from Christ, would you move irresistibly in their hearts and minds, move them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that against all explanation, perhaps they would simply believe, they would place the full weight of their heart and soul and mind and body on the work of Jesus, and they would trust. And for the rest of us, Father, would you continue to use passages such as these to help us to desire Jesus above all other things that our daily choosing would be reflective of your plan in this world. So God, I pray all these things the only way I can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let me just congratulate you. You've now heard more words spoken at you than the average auction. So let me ask you to stand for one more benedictory burst and we'll finally be dismissed. The long passage, thank you for your patience. We will hopefully, Lord willing, finish up John chapter 6 next Sunday. But for now, may the Lord who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you with every good work and may you have the desire to do it. God bless, you're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.